Part Three of The Ultimate Weapon by John Campbell, Jr. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Three Garest Gakay, commander of Expeditionary Force 93 of the planet Zathar, was returning homeward with joyful mind. In the lock of his great ship lay the T-247. In her cargo holds lay various items of machinery, mining supplies, foods, and records. And in her logbooks lay the records of many readings on the nine larger planets of a highly satisfactory planetary system. Garest Gakay had spent no less than three ultra-wearying years going from one sun to another in a definitely mapped-out section of space. He had investigated only eleven stars in that time. Eleven stars, progressively further from the titanic, red-flaming sun he knew as THE Sun. He knew it as THE Sun, and had several other appellations for it. Mira was so named by Earthmen because it was indeed a wonder-star. In Latin, mirare means to wonder. Irregularly, and for no apparent reason, it would change its rate of radiation. So far as those inhabitants of Sathor and her sister-world Asthor knew, there was no reason. It just did it, perhaps with malicious intent to be annoying. If so, it was exceptionally successful. Sathor and Asthor experienced, periodically, a young ice age. When Mira decided to take a rest, Sathor and Asthor froze up from the poles most of the way to the equators. Then Mira would stretch herself a little, move about restlessly, and Sathor and Astor would become uninhabitably hot anywhere within twenty degrees of the equator. Those Sathorian people had evolved in a way that made the circumstances endurable for savage or uncivilized people. But when a scientific civilization with a well-ordered mode of existence tried to establish itself, Mira was all sorts of nuisance. Garest Gakay was a peculiar individual to human ways of thinking. He stood some seven feet tall on his strange double-kneed legs and his four-toed feet. His body was covered with little short feather-like things that moved now with a volition of their own. They were moving very slowly and regularly. The spaceship was heated to a comfortable temperature, and the little fans were helping to cool Garest Gakay. Had it been cold? Every little feather would have laid down close against his neighbors, forming an admirable windproof and cold-proof blanket. Nature, on Sathor, had original ideas of arrangement, too. Sathorians possessed two eyes, one directly above the other in the center of their faces. The face was so long and narrow it resembled a blunt hatchet, with the two eyes on the edge. To counterbalance this vertical arrangement of the eyes, the nostril had been separated some four inches, with one on each of the sloping cheeks. His ears were little pink flesh cups on short muscular stems. His mouth was narrow and small, but armed with quite solid teeth adapted to his diet, a diet consisting of almost anything any creature had ever considered edible. Like most successful forms of intelligent life, Garest Gakay was omnivorous. An intelligent form of life is necessarily adaptable, and adaptation means being able to eat what was at hand. One of his eyes, the upper one, was fully twice the size of the lower one. 
This was his telescopic eye. The lower or microscopic eye was adapted to work for which a human being would have required a low-power microscope. The upper eye possessed a more normal power of vision, plus considerable telescopic powers. Garest Kakei was using it now to look ahead in the blank of space to where the gigantic Mira appeared. On his screens now Mira appeared deep violet, for he was approaching at a speed greater than that of light, and even this projected light of Mira was badly distorted. "'The distance is half a light-year now, sir,' reported the navigation officer. Reduce the speed, then, to normal velocity for these ranges. What reserve of fuel have we? Less than one thousand pounds. We will barely be able to stop. We were too free in the use of our weapons, I fear, replied the chief technician. Well, what would you? We needed those things in our reports. Besides, we could extract fuel from that ore we took on at Planet Nine of Fahalo. It is merely that I wish speed in the return. As we all do. And how soon do you believe the Council will proceed against the new system? It will be fully a year, I fear. They must gather the expeditions together and re-equip the ships. It will be a long time before all will have come in. Could they not send fast ships after them to recall them? Could they have traced us as we wove our way from Thort to Karst to Ralork to Fahalo? It would be impossible. Steadily the great ship had been boring on her way. Mira had been a disk for nearly two days. Gigantic, two hundred and fifty million mile Mira took a great deal of dwarfing by distance to lose her disk. Even at the twin planets, eight thousand two hundred and fifty millions of miles out, Mira covered half the sky, it seemed, red and angry. Sometimes, though, to the disgust of the Sathorians, it was just red-faced and lazy. Then Sathar froze. "'Gurir is in a descendant stage,' said the navigation officer presently. "'Sathar will be cold when we arrive.' "'It will warm quickly enough with our news,' Garest laughed. "'A system, a delightful system discovered, a system of many close-grouped planets. Why, think!' From one side of that system to the other is less of a distance than that from Unsthot, our first planet's orbit, to Insthor's orbit. That sun, as we know, is steady and warm. All will be well when we have eliminated that rather peculiar race. Odd that they should in some way be so nearly like us. Nearly Sathorian in build. I should not have suspected it. Though they did have some amazing peculiarities. Imagine! Two eyes just alike, and in a horizontal row. And that flat face! They looked as though they had suffered some accident that smashed the front of the face in. And also the peculiar beak-like projection. Why should a race ever develop so amazing a projection in so peculiar and exposed a position? It sticks out, inviting attack and injury. Right in the middle of the face. And to make it worse, there is the air channel and the only air channel. Why, one minor injury to the throat would be certain to damage that passage beyond repair and bring death. Yet such relatively unimportant things as ears and eyes are doubled. Surely you would expect that so important a member as the air passage would be doubled for safety. Those strange awkward arms and legs were what puzzled me. 
I have been attempting to manipulate myself as they must be forced to, and I cannot see how delicate or accurate manual manipulation would be possible with those rigid, inflexible arms. In some ways I feel they must have had clever minds to overcome so great a handicap to constructive work. But I suppose single joints in the arms become as natural to them as are more mobile, too. I wonder if life in any intelligent form wouldn't develop somewhat similar formations, though. Think, in all parts of Sathor, before men became civilized and developed communication, even so much as twenty thousand years ago, our records show that seats and chairs were much as they are today, and much as they are in all places among all groups. Then, too, the eye has developed in many different species and always reached much the same structure. When a thing is intended and developed to serve a given purpose, no matter who develops it or where or how, is it not apt to have similar shapes and parts? A chair must have legs and a seat and armrests and a back. You may vary their nature and their shape, but not widely, and they must be there. And I must anywhere have a sensitive retina, an adjustable lens, and an adjustable device for controlling the entrance of light. Similarly, there are certain functions that the body of an intelligent creature must serve which naturally tend to make intelligent creatures similar. He must have a tool, the hand. Yes, yes, I see your point. It must be so, for surely these creatures out there are strange enough in other ways. But tell me, have you calculated when we shall land? In twelve hours, thirty-three minutes, sir. Eleven hours later the expedition ship had slowed to a normal space speed. On her left hung the great globe of Asthor, rotating slowly, moving slowly in her orbit. Directly ahead Sathor loomed even greater. Tiny Telon, the thousand-mile diameter moon of the Insthor system, shone dull red in the reflected light of gigantic Mira. Mira herself was gigantic, red and menacing across eight and a quarter billions of miles of space. One hundred thousand miles apart, the twin worlds Sathor and Asthor rotated about their common center of gravity, eternally facing each other. Ten million miles from their common center of gravity, Telon rotated in a vast orbit. Sathor and Asthor were capped at each pole now by gigantic white ice caps. Mira was sulking, and as a consequence the planets were freezing. The expedition ship sank slowly toward Sethor. A swarm of smaller craft had flown up at its approach to meet it. A gaily-colored small ship marked the official greeting ship. Garest had withheld his news purposefully. Now suddenly he began broadcasting it from the powerful transmitter on his ship. As the words came through on a thousand sets, all the little ships began to whirl, dance, and break out into glowing, sparkling lights. On Sathar and Asthar even commotions began to be visible. A new planetary system had been found. They could move. Their overflowing populations could be spread out. The whole Insthar system went mad with delight as the great expeditionary ship settled downward. End of Part 3